As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I think you can't have policy without the technology. Some people sure. sort of want, you know, policy will solve this. No, other people say technology will solve this. No, you really need both. And, and the two work hand in hand. Mm. We need to have the technology that makes a government able to say, we're going to go 100% renewable with battery. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Danny Fortson. And this week, we have a return guest who's coming back to talk to us two and a half years, nearly two and a half years uh, since he was last in the pod. My goodness, time flies. It's kind of crazy. And that guest this week is Gene Berdichevsky, and he is the co-founder and CEO of Sila Nanotechnologies. And for longtime listeners, you may recall Gene was a very early employee at Tesla. He helped build the first battery pack for the for the Roadster, and then he left to start his own thing, which is Sila. And their kind of idea back in 2011 was to basically remake a core chemistry of batteries to make them far more efficient and effective. And that's a tall order. Nothing's really changed with lithium-ion batteries in like 30 years. So it was a classic kind of Silicon Valley, very big idea that if you pulled it off, could have huge implications because of course, in those intervening years, everybody, GM, Ford, VW, all the big car companies have come out and announced these hugely ambitious plans to go electric. And of course, the core technology at the heart of that push is the battery. And so meaningfully improving them would of course bring down costs, Uh, improve performance, and really consign the internal combustion engine to the dustbin of history, finally, after more than a century of dominance, which of course is not a bad thing for the planet. Anyhow, that was the idea. So what's happened? Since then, Sila has, uh, last year they raised $600 million from a bunch of investors, so not a small amount. And this month, they unveiled the first consumer product, the Whoop, you know, this fitness tracker that people seem to like, to hit the market with its new technology inside. So this new battery technology that increases energy density by about 20%, which means you can dramatically decrease the size of these gadgets. And then you kind of play that out and what that might mean for larger car batteries. It's quite a big deal. So Gene's been busy. And like I said, you know, if you play this out, um, looking at everything from energy to transport and beyond, there's some pretty big implications. So that's what I want to talk to him about. So I drove over to Alameda, back to the headquarters to check out their, you know, their bigger operation, the bigger machines, the bigger workforce, talk about what they've been up to and kind of what comes next and what it all means. And of course, we started with a tour of the machines. Anyhow, I think you're going to like this one. I'll now hand it over to my visit to Sila Nanotechnologies and my chat with Gene Berdichevsky. Enjoy. Hey, man. Hey, good to see you. It's been a long time. Indeed. Yeah. How's life? Very good. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to drop your stuff and we'll go? Sure. Oh, yeah, so this is all the R&D space, just like last time. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we've added probably another half dozen reactors just to, to increase the, the pace of, um, yeah. of uh, iteration. So, right, so that's our material. This, this, is, is, kinda, the, this is the money stuff. This, this is, is the money stuff uh, right. at a, a sort of intermediate stage in the processing. Right. From here to here is another sort of 100-ish X increase in scale. Right. Um, and again, 100X bigger reactor, you know, for the, for the listeners, right, it's, you know, a couple people can climb into it. Uh, yeah. And, and so at this scale, we can make enough material for, you know, tens of millions of small consumer devices. 
Yeah. And enough for all the cars we need to build to qualify our technology for automotive. I but understand. not enough for production and cars. Yeah, I understand. I understand. And so over the next three years, we're going to take these reactors and do what we've done twice already, go up another scale 100X. of 100X. And that'll be enough to, to get it into, you know, your your Mercedes or, 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 or your BMW or whatever I it may see. be. So one of the listeners many moons ago was like, you know, what I'd really like more of is you interview all these interesting people and then we never hear about them again. So I'd love to hear like more of like going back to see the progress of the people you spoke to years ago or whatever. And here I am. Here we go. Yeah. But before we dive into what you're doing, it would be important for people just to kind of as a scene setting, what is happening in the world of batteries more broadly right now? Because we were talking before we started recording about like Ford just had this big announcement, three new big battery factories. Tesla is obviously doing Tesla things. You have Rivian about to go public and starting production of, you know, a new brand new, what I expect will probably be a mass market, fully electric vehicle mm-hmm. and all the batteries they need for that. So it does feel like we're kind of in the midst of a moment. And I'd love to just be able to kind of quantify that. And then we can talk about what you're doing and why it's important. Yeah. So, you know, to set the scene, I think the world changed about a year and a half ago uh, in a mm. very dramatic way, which you can correlate to Tesla's stock price increase by a factor of 10 within you know within a year. Mm. But what actually happened is behind the scenes, uh, effectively, the global pools of money became convinced that the world's going 100% electric. And so that's why Tesla's stock price went up. And it's correlated to all of the big car makers realizing, deciding, and committing that they're going to end up being 100% EV companies. And and that's still coming to pass. You can see companies like Volvo that has already said, look, we're going to be 100% EV as soon as possible. Other companies like Daimler have said, we can be 100% EV by 2030, maybe sooner. And all of these things keep accelerating. And that's also created a boom of capital coming into the EV market, the battery market. And so there's always kind of a moment even in exponential growth, humans don't feel exponential growth, mm-hmm. although we've learned a lot about it in the last uh, couple of years here. But there's a moment where everyone kind of realizes what's happening. And I think that moment was sometime in 2020. And as a result, it's really dynamic. Uh, right now, one of the biggest trends I'm watching is the automakers vertically integrating into becoming battery makers. You had it mm-hmm. sort of start with, actually, even before Tesla said that they were doing it, I think Toyota announced their JV with Panasonic, where they were going to be 51% owners. Then Tesla, VW came out and said, we're going to build 4 million cars worth of our own batteries by you know 2028 or right. something like that, which is right. effectively most of their own supply captive. You have uh, you know Stellantis and Daimler partnering with Total and Saf to build battery factories. So even beyond sort of the battery providers, you're seeing these car makers say we're vertically integrating. And the latest, you, as you said, Ford building this mega complex. And I think SK is, is their cell partner there yeah. that's committing uh, to build production. Those aren't as vertically integrated as some of the Europeans are, and, yeah. and, and Japanese companies are doing, but it's fascinating to watch. And I think we are well past the tipping point where this is an irreversible trend and the world will be 100% electric within, I think, under two decades. Right. So that's what's happening now. And I want to go back slightly to back when you were in short pants, fresh out of university, because you were at Tesla in the very, very early days. I was, yeah. And so if you could explain what you did there and kind of how far we have come, because one of the reasons, it seems to me, that all of a sudden everybody decided, okay, we're going electric beyond the climate change issues is improvements in battery technology and a reduction in this idea of range anxiety of like, you know, I don't want to buy, spend more for a car where I can, that is less useful. Yeah, it's less improvement than you would actually think in the sense that, so I was at Tesla from 2004 to 2008, and I was responsible for building the world's first automotive lithium ion battery pack commercial because for memory it's, it was pretty crude right <laughs> it was yeah i mean i'm sure it was great it was, i'm sure it was fabulous it was pretty sophisticated <laughs> but yes it was very you know what we the problem at the time was the car makers basically said look we need automotive grade lithium ion yeah and the market was like well sure that'll cost you 10x more than commercial grade lithium ion and they said well that's too expensive we can't build evs yeah and so you had this chicken and egg but of course if you could produce automotive grade lithium ion at a massive scale it'd be just as cheap as commercial grade. So you had this chicken and egg.
bag and Tesla said, look, we're just going to take commercial grade and we're going to make an cells and we're going to make an automotive grade system. We're going to make a safe system. Even if any one cell goes into thermal runaway, which mm. is fire, they will not propagate and the whole system will be safe. And so the car will be safe. That was sort of the insight we had. And we were able to break the chicken and egg. We were able to buy commodity laptop cells, which were actually pretty cheap. They were already 200 and 50 bucks a kilowatt hour, which is dang low and sort of broke that cycle. And look, even the first car had basically 300 mile range. So, so range anxiety mm. wasn't that big a deal. If you got cheap enough batteries, you could shove enough of them in a car and right. you can have it go the distance. So the Roadster, just to be clear, it was powered by a bunch of laptop batteries. Kind exactly. Of. Six, 6,931, if I'm not mistaken. 6,931. Yeah. I'm going to double check that. Later. Yeah. So those were basically kind of strapped together, basically. And that was the energy source or the energy storage yeah. for that first Roadster. That's right. Right. And, it, you know, the only thing that evolved from there from the Tesla perspective is the individual cells, which were these cylindrical, about the size of your thumb cells. You know, those cells, the quality on them got better and better and better. Yeah. And then they got slightly bigger. They went from an 18 millimeter diameter to a 21 millimeter diameter. And now they're moving to a 46 millimeter diameter. So really, they just got a little bigger and fatter and the mm. quality standards went up. But really, nothing has materially changed at the chemistry level. There were some modest improvements. People yeah. pushed the cathodes a little closer to limits. What happened was the scale that started to occur as a result of Tesla and then others coming in got the price to, to come mm. down to this sort of pretty close these days to this magical $100 per kilowatt hour number where you know you can take a lot of segments of cars, particularly more expensive cars, to the mass market. And you know the automotive companies, they did exactly what they said. They bought automotive-grade cells. Those cost $1,000 a kilowatt hour when they first started. And then those have come down to about the same price as what you know we were buying a Tesla mm. 15 years ago. So now these days, you can get your batteries for a little over 100 bucks a kilowatt hour. And so you can build all kinds of electric vehicles, whether it's you know, the Rivian truck or yeah. the Mercedes S-Class, the EQS, you know, or whatever your heart's desire at a fairly reasonable price point for at least premium segment cars. Yeah, premium, right. And so what we need to get to mass market and sort of the full transformation is we need, you know, really an additional kicker on that. And the best way in our view to do that is to deploy a new chemistry mm. into that existing kind of cell form factor into those existing battery factories that exist today. And so we set out in 2011, you know, essentially, I, I always believed the whole world was going to go electric. It was just a matter of time. We were kind of waiting for 2020 to hit, if yeah. you will, and for everyone else to realize it. And so we started designing a brand new chemistry that would be extremely scalable because we knew that as the world got to electrifying, things would go really, really fast. Yeah. And you wouldn't have time to scale up a new way of making batteries. So we wanted to make a technology that could leverage existing ways of making batteries so that by the time we brought it to market, you know, today there's 5 million electric cars worth of battery production in the world, something like that. Is that it? Yeah. It's going to be 50 million in, you know, in under 10 yeah. years. But, you know, our technology is 100% compatible with every single one of those factories. Right. And so any one of those factories that wants to adopt our technology, every single battery coming out the back end of that factory can store more energy. Right. And the reason that's important is twofold. One, you can make products customers love. So how about a 500-mile range car? Someone's going to pay that at the premium end. Yep. But the other reason that's important is it can reduce the cost on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis of the cell. So mm. think about it this way. The number that really matters for car makers is dollars divided by kilowatt hours. Mm -hmm. Our technology increases the kilowatt hours. Mm -hmm. And so long as it does so without increasing the dollars very much, yeah. that ratio drops. Right. And so we see a path over the next 10 years through our technology and through a couple other things that the industry will, we're confident will innovate on. It's about a $50 per kilowatt hour number. And at that number, all ground transportation is electric from there on out forever. And at right. that number, you can take solar and wind and, and get penetration well beyond sort of 20% on the grid. You can take it almost all the because way. Because you can create these utility-scale batteries that actually... That buffer the energy and get right. and get you through the one- and two-day kind of energy cycles. You'll, you'll need some complementary energy storage technology to get you through, you know, what if the sun and the wind don't don't go for, for yeah. a month. But, but people are working on those as well. That's sort of the last 20%, if you will. But the first 80, you know, solar and wind plus lithium ion storage. And so we, we see, again, within two decades, not just all ground transportation becoming electric, but 
the grid becoming, you know, as close to 100% renewable as, as you can imagine. So let's talk about the little kind of magic black dust we were looking at out there on the floor. Yeah. So since we last met, you guys raised a boatload of money. Something like six hundred million. Yeah, it's a small boat. So we're gonna a, we're gonna need a, a bigger boat, boat, Danny. Yeah, I know, I know you will. I know you. So, but like you raised a, this. I think it was it was a six hundred million dollars. Yep. From investors as well as some big corporate partners and kind of OEM types. Yeah. So so Daimler led a financing about three years ago, and then the, more recently it was it was all financial investors. You know, okay. Co two and T row. You know, people who are looking at this as a great opportunity to make money. Yes. Uh, because this is, you know, the world is going to go electric. And so, you know, the reason we raised 600 million was to get started on building a much bigger factory. So as you know, we talked a little bit about on the tour, we have enough production today for sort of tens of millions of small consumer devices. And, uh, and we've got our first device in the field, we can touch on that in a minute yeah. here. But what we need to do is is now take the scale we have and scale it up to make enough product for hundreds of 1000s of electric cars, and then million electric cars, and eventually 100 million electric cars. And, you know, just for sort of the scale comparison, right, the amount of our material needed for one car is the same as the amount of our material needed for 10,000 cell phones, Mm -hmm. and is the same amount of material as is needed for about a quarter million AirPods. Yeah. And so, you know, one car, quarter million AirPods. And eventually, we need enough material for 100 million electric cars per year for the world to to really go electric. So we have a lot of scaling work to do. The 600 million is really a down payment on this first factory that we're going to go build. And we'll certainly need to raise a lot more capital to achieve the the full vision. So can you put into context like two things, that little vial of black dust we're looking at, what is that? What does that do? And that 20% that sounds impressive, but I don't know if it is. I mean, yeah. I know if it is, but you know what I mean? No, no, like, I, I hear you. So, <laughs> so yeah, so our technology today, the first products we're launching in the market help our customers get about a 20% higher energy density in their cell. Right. So same, remember kind of that dollar per kilowatt hour number, we're increasing the kilowatt hours by 20%. Yeah. The reason that really matters is a you can increase the range by 20% but more interestingly you can make a radically better product and this is as true for cars as it is for consumer devices so let's let's talk about consumer devices for a minute a couple weeks ago we announced that our technology will power the new whoop 4.0 performance tracking device it tracks your fitness sleep recovery yeah and you know as a result of our battery technology which enabled them to get about a 19 you know, almost 20% increase in, in cell energy density, they were able to reduce the size of the device by a third, by 33%. Mm. What that enabled them to do is launch an entire new category of products where you can now get, you know, a, a running shorts that you can fit the little device right into your running shorts so you don't have to have it on your wrist. So if you're playing a sport, let's say, that where you can't have a device on your wrist, you can yeah. now have it somewhere else on your body. They call that their anywhere line, which is, which is pretty cool. Until you wash it by accident. I suspect it'll go through just fine, <laughs> but don't quote me on that. Um, but so allow them to make a radically better product. Yeah. Now, now think about applying that to cars, right? You need on, 20% less battery. Right? You need 20% less battery, but there are actually certain segments where you're not going to get electrification without a much better product. I'll give you an example. You lived in England for a long time, mm-hmm. right? Really hard to have a place with a garage, etc. You totally. park on the street. Also really hard to have a really big car. So you want mm. a small car. What if you could have a small car that actually has 500 miles of range and can recharge in 10 or 15 minutes. Now, all of a sudden, you can imagine going once a month to the supercharger right. and you have no range anxiety. You don't need a plug on the street. You don't need to own a garage. We're going to have to make cars that can do that in yeah. order to get some segments of the population to love their electric car more than they love their gas car, yeah. full stop. And so it's not just about, hey, it's longer range, hey, it's lower cost. It's about radically better products in the field. And I'm a big believer that like tree hugging is not gonna save the world here. No. You know, Getting people to buy amazing products that happen to be sustainable is the key, in my view. Yeah. You know, there are places where policy is going to be required. There are places where there's edges of, of decarbonization that, that my approach won't work. But the full bulk of it is going to be making things that are just better. And electric cars today are just better than gas cars. Yeah. And so, and we don't need to get way down deep in the weeds, but what is this new chemistry? And why did you think after decades of, you know, lithium ion being the thing, and that is the thing, 
why you thought it was possible and what is it that you have created that has made this possible? Yeah, so so the chemistry is a silicon-based anode. It's still technically lithium-ion. So let me let me back up and get a running start. So yeah. the battery has really two main components. It has an anode, which stores lithium when the battery is charged. Mm-hmm. And it has a cathode, which stores lithium when the battery is discharged. It has two additional components, a separator that keeps them from short-circuiting, inert, mostly you know dead weight that you're carrying around, yeah. but it does an important job. And then a liquid electrolyte that allows the lithium to move between the anode and the cathode when you charge and discharge. But the two primary components are the anode and the cathode. And the amount of energy a battery can store is proportionate to how much lithium that material can soak up in a given you know, right. a given volume. And so silicon for a really long time has been known to be able to soak up the more lithium than the existing anode material today, which is graphite. Yeah. And so our technology, we've built a, a composite particle that uses silicon as the active ingredient that can replace the graphite particles in the mm. anode of a lithium-ion battery. And when we do that, you need a lot less of our material. On a weight basis, you need five times less than you need graphite. Right. On a volume basis, sort of two times less or so. And because we improved this one of the two major components, we save, you know, essentially what we're doing, we're saving a lot of the space that would have gone to that component for a certain amount of energy storage. And that's how the battery gets smaller. So with our technology, big batteries get smaller or small batteries get more powerful, right? You can, right. You can do one of two things, either make the battery smaller and, or have a small battery store more energy. So that's, you know, that's how our technology works. The key for us has always been to make the silicon technology such that it can cycle really well mm. because in the past, silicon has only been able to be used maybe 100 times, charge, discharge. So you can't have that for your phone. I was going to ask. So that's what I was going to ask. Because if you say, on one hand, silicon is known for a long time to have this better profile. Yeah. Why has no one else done this? They, they've tried. People have been trying for close to 15 years. They haven't been able to crack the code the way we have on making it cycle. And the issue with it is it stores so much lithium. Like one atom of silicon actually ends up reacting with four atoms of lithium. So when you charge your phone at night, four atoms of lithium get up and out of the cathode, move over, and bond with this one atom of silicon. And mm. now in a given volume, you know, at an atomic level, you have five atoms where you used to have one. And so that creates an expansion. And then as you discharge your phone, the lithium moves back the other way and that silicon contracts. And that mechanical expansion contraction just pulverizes the battery. And so people have been able to stabilize it for, you know, 100 cycles. We're really the first to be able to stabilize it for 1,000 cycles. That's what's really needed for consumer devices and and cars to be, you know, to be useful in their life. And when I say 1,000 cycles, I mean like from 100% to zero. Partial cycles actually do less than partial damage. So you could, yeah. do, you could do probably 3,050% cycles before the battery kind of starts noticeably right. degrading. So we cracked the code. We did it by, you know, really iterating. I mean, we have an amazing team of scientists and engineers. We've hired just a phenomenal team of brilliant scientists. And then we hired, a, you know, a world-class team of engineers that created the reactors you saw that are custom reactors running custom chemistry high iteration speed you know we've went through 55,000 iterations to really kind of crack the code on what is the recipe for making a particle that can stay stable and robust through all of these cycles and so that's what we did and then we are able to take those materials that we make and because we made it in this powdered form which looks a lot like graphite to the naked eye we can ship it in a bag that looks just like graphite to the same battery makers who put it in the same mixers, coat it on the exact same coating lines, assemble it into the exact same equipment, don't have to invest a penny in CapEx, and then all of a sudden every battery coming out of their factory is just better. Right. So we, we not only cracked the scientific code, but we embodied it, that technology in a form that is incredibly easy for the market to adopt. And, and that's, that gives you scalability. So you started this company in 2011. Mm-hmm. How old were you then? 27. So you're 27. You come out of this Tesla experience and you're like, you know, I'm going to kind of remake this core technology that no one else has been able to do. And you go out and raise money. Yep. And people are like, yeah, that's a great idea, 27-year-old Gene. Or is, I mean, well, how was that process? Yeah. So a couple of things. One, it's about the team, right? So one of my co-founders are in our, our chief technology officer is uh, Professor Gleb Yushin. 
Professor Glebushin is a brilliant uh, scientist who had been working on this for a number of years. So we started with a core technology from his lab. And at some level, we knew this was a, you know, a science project that may well have failed. We didn't know. Well, that's the thing. The 55,000 iterations. Yeah. And something where you're kind of like shooting for the moon. This feels pretty high risk. Yeah, very high risk. We were very fortunate to have the investors we had with the patients they had. You know, now, to be fair, I wasn't like, hey, it's going to take 10 years. I was like, it's going to take five. Yeah. I was wrong, but I'm pretty sure they knew I was going to be wrong. You know, at the end of the day, if you believed in 2011, which very few people did, that the whole world was going to go all electric. Yeah. And that, you know, we could make one of the two most important components in the entire car, hmm. right? And an entire battery for the grid. And by the way, it could be used in your phone and other places. Yeah. You know, if we could successfully crack the code on something that hasn't changed at that time in 20 years, at this moment in 30, 30. years, yeah. you'd be sitting on a really good opportunity. So I think the risk reward, it's, it's a perfect venture bet. It made mm. a lot of sense from a venture capital standpoint. Now, remember 2011 was only a couple of years after the Solyndra's. It was the wake of the first green tech kind of bust. It took basically. some gutsy investors. You know, our first investors were Sutter Hill Ventures and Matrix Partners. They, Mike Spicer. Mike Spicer, Andy Verhalen at Matrix. And, you know, they just believed and, and you know, helped us kind of stay on it until we really yeah. cracked the code. And then once we cracked the code, we started raising much more significant capital, right? So then we started to raise $70 million, $200 million, yeah. $600 million. But, uh, you know, it takes people with vision and some belief. And we all knew like this could not work out and I'd go have to find a day job. <laughs> As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And was there ever a moment on like, you know, iteration 27,286 where you're like, this isn't going to work? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we ever thought that, you know, we might have run out of money, but I don't think we ever had a moment where because what's interesting about science and physics is you can very quickly determine what's not very quickly but you can determine what's not possible and so if you're willing to have the intellectual honesty to go right at the hard problem not to sort of dabble around the edges show yeah. progress raise some more money dabble around the edges show progress raise more money there's two ways of attacking uh hard science problems one is what i just described the other is go straight for the teeth of the beast right belly of the beast like right at them and essentially Find out as quickly as possible if what you're trying to do violates some rules of physics or chemistry that you don't yet understand or that the world doesn't yet understand. And if you can't falsify that hypothesis, you know, if every time you try to figure out how will this break, how will this not work, you keep coming up empty, now you start to build confidence. And then over time, as you solve the hardest part of the problem, once you've cracked the code on the hardest part of the problem, you go, okay, well, we have a team to crack the whole thing. It's going to take time, but if we solve the hardest piece, then we can, we can solve the others. And so, you know, that's the kind of cultural attitude we took towards this. We right. wanted to go right at the hard problem. And again, I'll come back to kind of description of how our technology works. Not only does the material work, but it's a powder that seamlessly drops into our customer's process. There's other ways of making batteries that can make silicon work but you have to remake how the battery is manufactured. Right. It's an easier technical problem to solve if you're allowed to change the rules of the game. 
but it's a harder technology to scale and it's not going to have the same impact as a technology that doesn't change the rules of the game. No, because you have to remake the entire supply chain infrastructure, basically. Exactly. And so, you know, from day one, we said we're not going to take any easy shortcuts. We don't care about making something that works. We care about something that works and has a massive impact. Mm. And, and I think that was always part of it. You know, another example is we use only commodity precursors as inputs. So we know we can scale to tens of millions, you know, mm. eventually 100 million electric cars worth of this technology. We could have taken an easier route and said, oh, we're going to use a little bit of Eye of Newt, a little fancy, you know, <laughs> stuff over here, some rare earths, like made yeah, yeah, it works yeah, yeah. easier. But but then we would have been like, okay, it works. Now we have to get rid of all those things and how do, you know. Yeah. So I, I think that's monumentally important if you want to tackle something like, you know, at the scale of, of automotive, at the scale of energy, at the scale of climate change. You have to put the problem on in the science and changes little about how humans need to behave in order to adopt right. it as possible. For sure. Minimize the pain of the transition, yeah. basically. Make better products, right? Exactly. Both, both for our cell manufacturing customers and for the yeah. end users, right? I'm curious, you mentioned earlier a lot of the kind of, you had a big round of financial investors who were like, you know, clearly in it for the money, red-blooded capitalists. When did you notice that shift within that world of like, oh, actually this transition or what is happening or the urgency or primacy of climate change is now such that like this is the game that we want to play so they're all red-blooded capitalists on our cap table you know the ones earlier on just had a ton more vision yeah. right so the you know the sutter hills and matrixes of the world the mike spicers of the world had a lot more vision they could see it 10 years ahead of anybody yeah that was 2011 everyone else got to the party in 2020 so 2020, last year was the moment. Last year was the moment. Last year was the moment. You now have people who run tens and hundreds of billions of dollars going all in on this, mm. changing their personal, you know, areas of focus from things they've done for a decade to this area. You know, you have governments that are obviously putting a lot of money towards this. In Europe, there's a ton of money going into electrification. We'll mm -hmm. see how the U.S. comes through this year's budget cycle, right? But there's opportunity for a lot to go towards electrification. And with electrification came everything else because this was sort of the seminal, this was the lead horse. And now everyone goes, oh, wow, I can see how this all works. And, yeah. and so people are scrambling to figure out how to put capital to work. And they realize that many of the companies that, you know, when, when you invest in a company, you're looking at their next 30 years of, you know, cash flow. And a lot of the legacy energy companies, I don't know that their next 30 years are going to look that bright. No. Um, and just going back to the scaling question, those kind of those big fancy ovens we were looking at right now, you can make, I don't know how much from that oven equals one car, but yeah, not much. Yeah. And we're talking about getting to 100 million cars. And then we're also talking about utility scale batteries. And all that scaling question, how do you see that playing out? Because right now where it's like we're at walking up to the starting line, it feels like we're not even at the starting line yet. You know, again, exponentials are kind of a funny thing, right? So we went from our R&D scale that you saw 100x to a pilot scale in three years. Then we went from that pilot scale 100x to this next scale in three years. We're going to go from the current scale to another 100x in three years. And then after that, another 100x in three years. Right. So we could be there in a decade where all electric vehicles are using CELA technology. Your stuff. Sure. Exponentials are an amazing thing. <laughs> so if you can really push the process technology and the scaling like that, which we believe we can and we see the path for it. Now, that's going to require a lot of capital. You know, this next phase, you know, plant might cost a billion dollars or yeah. more and then we're going to need 50 of them for the yeah. world so we probably won't be the only ones but that's where it's going it gets a lot easier once you're replicating the same thing now you know think about there's 200 billion dollars of investment that go into oil and gas just to make up new supply every year yeah because as the old wells die out we're having to put more and more capex in the ground there's plenty of capital once you have yeah. something that can be replicated. That's proven and, and scalable yeah. and everything else, right? There's, there's probably about $200 billion of battery factories in the pipeline over the next seven years that are planned to be built by various companies, right? Yeah. So you're already seeing these monumental $100-plus billion shifts. The thing is, new technology, you have to get to sort of that proven scale. So for us, you know, this next step that we're going to take to get to 100,000 electric cars, from there, it's just copy and paste, 
Yeah. You know, I mean, just. Yeah. My, yeah, yeah. My, my, yeah, my, yeah, my yeah. manufacturing team will kill me if I, when, <laughs> when they hear this. But it's, you know, it's very different than sort of inventing a hundred times bigger reactor. It starts to become an operational challenge. It was interesting. I was looking at, uh, I was on Rivian's website just noodling around and they're saying they, they now have a, uh, a 175,000 mile warranty on their battery, which is, uh-huh. quite, which is quite impressive. That's pretty good. But I was saying that because three years ago, I bought my dad's beat up old Prius, which you saw me drive up in uh-huh. today. About three months after I bought it, the battery crapped out. And I was like, I have to spend two grand on a new lithium ion battery, which will now go on for a decade or yep. more or whatever. And I ask because it's one, the kind of the life of the battery you were talking about earlier, the cycles is a big factor in all of this that I don't think a lot of people think about because we're still early in this kind of revolution. And I was also thinking about this idea of the million mile battery that, you know, is starting to kind of like, it's a mythical thing. And so the cycle issue and also, which is related, I guess, to the million mile battery, is that realistic? Yes, very. So we can already, you can already have a million mile battery. Let's come back to that in a second. Okay. So the, the challenge My with... My Prius lasted like 100,000 miles. So the I'm challenge so with your Prius is you have a really tiny battery. Right. And so you're constantly charging and discharging, constantly charging and discharging. Mm. What many people didn't realize, what the automakers didn't realize, that Tesla realized very quickly, is the bigger the battery you put in your car, the longer it's going to last, right? So batteries degrade proportional to how many times you fully use them. And so when you have a 300-mile range car where the battery can go for 1,000 cycles— you have a 300,000 mile car. Mm-hmm. When you have a 500 mile range car, you have a half million mile battery. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. When you go the other way, as a lot of car makers did, a lot of legacy car makers did in the beginning, they went to 100 mile range cars. Hmm. All of a sudden, that warranty became pretty miserable, right? And you stress the battery more and more and more. So you actually have a lot of benefit to going to bigger battery packs because you will eventually use it up, yeah. right? But you'll have a better experience while you're doing it. The other thing that where I'm really bullish on electrification, and this is something folks haven't begun to realize yet, and this hasn't started coming into the market, but we actually think you're going to effectively get to a forever battery, 30-year battery life, you know, with daily use. And the reason I'm really bullish on that is that there isn't a physics and chemistry fundamental limit of why you can't do that. Mm. And as more and more capital comes into the R&D, we are understanding at an atomic level how this degradation mechanism happens and how to avert it. And every time we iterate through our materials, right, we have materials in our lab, in our R&D lab, they're a little ways from production that yeah. are already out to a couple thousand cycles, right? I, right. I, I need to get to 10,000 cycles and that's a 30-year So through this battery. 10 years, you're like, oh, this is how this works. We can tweak this, tweak that, there, and then I'll rejig our recipe and oh, that lasts... 10,000 cycles, 30 years. I see. And so eventually you replace your car, not your battery. And so what makes me so bullish on this is batteries are a technology, whereas fossil fuels are a natural resource. And they have Mm -hmm. very different intrinsic properties. With natural resources of any kind, the more you use them, the more scarce they become to find and the more the price goes up. Mm -hmm. With technologies, the more you produce them, the learning curve, the price only goes down and the anything that's not theoretically impossible becomes more and more likely to happen, right? I mean, imagine going back to the 70s and talking to the transistor guys at Intel and saying, one day you're going to make seven nanometer chips. Yeah. They would, Yeah. even the people who believe the most would laugh you out of the room. But, you know, a physicist would say, well, it's not physically impossible. Yeah. And so, you know, humanity has an amazing capacity for this kind of innovation. You just can't do that innovation with natural resources because just yeah. it's the fundamental underpinning nature of a natural resources versus the nature of a technology. So, and I mentioned you could already have a million mile battery today. I mean, first of all, you could take, you could have a thousand mile range car if you really sort of, it wouldn't be a practical car, but you yeah. could. But the other th- reason is today you can have a very long cycle life battery, but it costs more per kilowatt hour. Mm. So you can get these 5,000 cycle batteries, but they're more expensive on an upfront basis. And so they don't make sense for consumers because you're yeah. never going to, you don't need a million mile warranty. The trick is going to be over the next 10 years, making the highest energy density cells will be the lowest dollar per kilowatt hour. 
and having those cells be able to give you the, the whole 10,000 cycles, 30 year life, right? So if you can kind of combine it all into that single cell where it has the lowest dollar per kilowatt hour and the longest cycle life, yeah. that's the dream. I think by 2030, we'll, that will be in the market. Is there anybody else doing what you're trying to do or have done? There's a lot of people trying. <laughs> we are the only next generation battery technology in the market today. And, and that sets us apart from sort of all the other startups that are trying to do this. You know, we're going to be in millions of devices by the end of next year with a couple other, you know, yeah. between Whoop and a couple other partners. That's a, that's a whole different playing field. There's lots of other promising technologies. I would love for them to come to market. I think the world needs every bit of it that's, that's possible. Today, we're the leader in the space of next-gen battery technology. And we're, we're certainly very ambitious on, on what we want to achieve with that. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? First nine years, former Soviet Union, some of those north of the Arctic Circle. Where? St. Petersburg, Murmansk, and then my family came to the States, uh, Virginia. What year was that? Uh, 92. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when things got... A little after things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Things opened up. Right. But yeah, so, you know, I, I'm uh, maybe relatedly, I'm a big believer of kind of the venture capital model as a, as a mm. force for good. I think it's, there's a lot of opportunities if you align that venture capital model towards the right targets. Obviously, yeah. it, like, like any powerful system, it can be used towards things that are, you know, not that interesting, but... Like um, $700 juicers, I'm saying that, not you. Um, <laughs> for example. Yeah, funny story on that, maybe after the pod. Um, but... You know, so, so I think it, it really matters what you put your elbow grease towards, mm -hmm. but it's a really powerful model when you put it towards something like sustainability and, and, and making the world a better place. So like I said, without that venture capital model, the first nine years would have been impossible mm -hmm. and to do the work we did in the first nine and the, you know, in the last one is nonsensical. Yeah. 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 And, um, are your parents academics or like where, where does the kind of the Engin engineers and did you guys arrive to Virginia kind of like what was that landing like? Like, did they find jobs in what they were doing there or was it more? They were, they were nuclear submarine engineers. Um, oh, I see. So they ended up being computer programmers, like a lot of Russian immigrants. Right. So software engineers in the States, you know, and I've always liked math, science, th those kind of things. And, and, uh, you know, for me, sort of a lot of this kind of obsession with energy and, and batteries came really in, in undergrad, having spent a lot of time on a solar car project, which was, uh, oh, that was at, Stan at Stanford. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. So I kind of fell in love with energy. I fell in love with solar batteries and we built a car from the ground up, raced it from Chicago to LA, 2,300 miles, lots of disasters along the way, but we, <laughs> but we finished. And like a good startup, you know, we took those disasters and learnings and actually the, the team placed first in the next two year cycle. Oh, cool. Um, so it was, a, it was both a good lesson and, what a messy startup looks like and how to sort of take that and learn from it. And then, you know, from there, that's where I, I learned about lithium ion batteries actually wrote a business plan for making electric sports cars in the U S market with 300 mile range. And then learned that some entrepreneurs, Oh, were, there's some were, other dude, doing some this other, already. some other folks were doing it. And I, <laughs> I kind of said, fine, I'll, I'll go ahead and join. Right. Them. Well, to that point around the solar powered car. Yeah. That's another technology that has now that has been scaled up is wildly cheap. And way better than it used to be. And to levels where, again, even 10 years ago, you go to the most ardent pro-solar engineer or yeah. leader. Actually, our COO, Bill Mulligan, was one of the people instrumental in building SunPower from mm. zero to two billion in revenue for their terrestrial solar cell business. He led R&D for them. And even he didn't quite believe that they would get to a dollar a watt. You know, and now they make cells for 20 cents a watt. And so people constantly underestimate the pace and the level that technology can get to. So you yeah. really have to start with the question of what's, what's physically, meaning by rules of thermodynamics and physics, not possible, and work backwards from that, and then think about what's the path to get there going forward. But yeah, solar, solar scaled up immensely. I think you're going to see the same thing in batteries. Batteries are a little bit more challenging. There's just the mass of material, the mass of product, yeah. and the scale of it is bigger. But we're going to see a similar thing, and and uh, and actually, it's it's fun. There's a there's a company in Europe that is actually putting solar on the roofs of EVs, and the the. Well, uh, so this is this was my question. So a lot of those early kind of science projects, like the one you worked on, yeah, it was kind of a time of excitement around. Oh well, maybe we could do solar and pellet car. Oh, isn't that that's cool? And I'm just thinking of the advances that have happened there with batteries. Is there a path there now of like? 
why don't we have solar powered cars? Or does it just not make sense because batteries will get to the point where like you charge it once for a month and you don't have to worry about the solar panels on a roof or whatever. On the no, roof. so so it's interesting, right? So you could have these guys on your maybe on your pod sometime. Yeah. Uh, company's called Lightyear, and mm-hmm. you know I think they set a world record recently for the most efficient car drive, and so they actually charged quite a lot while they drove mm. because you can get a couple square meters of solar on your roof. Yeah. You can actually get a few miles per hour out of it, and if you imagine again, go back to like living in. Well, it wouldn't work in England, but maybe work in Spain. <laughs> but like imagine living in some nice city in Spain and you're parked on the street and like your car gets 10 miles, you know, from the solar charges during yeah. the day and your commute's 10 miles and you have a range of 500 miles because you have Sela's next gen battery in it. Yeah, yeah. And like, how often are you going to go to the recharge yeah. station? And when you do, it's 10 minutes and it's a nice coffee shop next yeah. door, right? So this world that we're building towards, I think is, is just going to be a lot more pleasant than having gas fumes and, and all this stuff. So it'll get there. You know, the one thing about solar on a car, I think people now really love panoramic glass roofs. Totally. And so I think it's basically going to be come down to a question for you as a consumer. Do you want to see the stars or do you want to go to a gas station less or, you know, charging station? I never right, go to a gas right, station right, less right, frequently. Right. So, but, but I think you're, you're going to see cool technologies like that. The other thing that's interesting about batteries is because they are quite heavy, you know, and, and quite expensive, it has put an insane premium on energy efficiency of vehicles. Mm. So the new EQS, I think, boasts a... EQS is is the Mercedes Mercedes. electric sedan. I think it's the world leading drag coefficient of like 0.201. It's a dimensionless number that's proportional to how much drag a car has. You know, back in the day, you know, 0.26 was amazing just a few years ago. And now we're talking about something that's 20% more aerodynamically efficient. And people are pushing and pushing that limit. And so really kind of as a result of batteries being kind of expensive and big and heavy, Mm. it's actually pushing a lot of innovation into motors, into power electronics, into uh, the aerodynamics of vehicles, into low rolling resistance tires. And this is good for the world at large because the less energy we need to move people around, the more of, you know, our renewables will go to replacing coal and other dirty power plants. So it sounds like you're a, a techno optimist in my field, I'm very in your familiar field. with the energy field, and I'm a very big technology. Yeah, no, because I ask because I mean, especially where we are in California. Actually, this fire season, at least for the Bay Area, was pretty okay. Yeah, but the last five years have been horrendous, terrible. And I've talked about this before on the pod of just like this idea that you have, you know red skies in the middle of the day and ash falling down on everything, and it's kind of like end of days type vibe. It does feel like, I would imagine. It for you and probably your investors, it's like visceral and real in a way and er- more urgent than it might have been when we were like 10 years ago and it was more of like, well, we're just going to see if this works. And, you know, I'm wondering if in terms of like the entrepreneurs you talk to, if there are more people who have had that experience and are like, you know, what, I'm not going to build an app. I'm not going to build some kind of, you know, another line of code. I'm going to do something that's more kind of in this world. Yeah. So funny you mentioned that. When we finish here, I'm talking to an entrepreneur that's built a company that's worth tens of billions of dollars, mostly software, who's very excited to get into the climate game. Yeah. He was introduced to me by another entrepreneur who sold mm-hmm. a company for a few billion dollars in the software world who is already doing something amazing in the climate game. I'll sort of leave the names out of it, but, yeah, but yeah. It's, it's happening real time and it's awesome to watch. You know, I think for us, at Sela, you know, we're, we're moving at whole speed, if you will. You know, we, we need capital, but it's going to take us a decade to build out totally. enough of this technology to make all cars go electric. But I think there's other areas that are under-resourced from talent. Well, at the end of the day, you need vision, leadership, and money. Money's yep. here now, so it's time for kind of more vision and more leadership to, yeah. to step in. The other thing I think a lot about is, you know, our role is, my role as a technologist, I consider myself a technologist, is to create technologies that enable our policymakers to then make decisions that push us towards the brighter future. And make their choices easier. Make their choices easier. And But but I, I think you can't have policy without the technology. Some people sure. sort of want, you know, Policy will solve this. No, other people say technology will solve this. No, you really need both. And, and the two work hand in hand. You know, what I mean by that is, let's rewind a little bit to the early 2000s. You had the California Air Resources Board, which was 
pretty progressive in their thinking said, we're going to have 3% of cars in California will have to be electric. And if you want to sell cars in California, 3% of the cars you sell will have to be electric. Well, it's, even though California is what, I don't know, 10th largest economy in the world. Yeah. I, I don't know the exact numbers. Fifth. Fifth. All right. That sounded almost too big to be true, but, but <laughs> I, I trust, I trust you on that. Um, and so every car maker said, well, well, I better make EVs. Yeah. And, and so they, they did, um, they started to, but the EVs sucked. And even though some people love the EV1, I mean, it was 70 mile range. It was, it was a tiny car that was smaller than a shoebox, you know? And so the California Air Resources Board basically rolled back that policy. You can't have policy when technology is not ready. Yeah. Now, you know, Tesla's proven that you can make amazing cars that happen to be electric. And now government can say, we're going 100% electric. And, and the same thing will, will need to play out in other sectors, right? Mm -hmm. We need to have the technology that makes a government able to say, we're going to go 100% renewable with battery. You need technology that lets the government say, you know, we insist that all products coming in here account for their CO2 emissions and pay a tax if you want to sell something here based on, you know, embodied CO2 in your product. Yeah. Things like that. So, you know, I think technologies have to enable policies and then it creates a virtuous cycle where those policies then encourage more capital investment in those technologies. And, and those two things kind of need to work hand in hand. So I'm optimistic that as we get more visionary leaders in here, the capital's here. It's waiting for people. Yeah. Um, on the technology side. And as we bring those technologies to market, we'll enable policymakers to lead where, you know, I, I don't think it was realistic to say we have to stop using all fossil fuels 25 years ago. It would have caused a lot of misery in the mm -hmm. world. We didn't have the right technologies. And, and as we as we start to, then it's feasible to do that while actually, you know, helping uplift countries that are still growing, helping uplift countries that, you know, really need economic growth around the world. So when's our next pod? Last time there's a pilot facility. Now yep. you have this big thing and you actually have product out there in the world. So the next pod I think should be like when you've got maybe your first like plant in Kentucky or whatever you end up yeah. choosing. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can do one before then, but I, I think it'd be fun to see the progression. For sure. I think we should definitely do a pod when I have some big old tools that are a hundred times th yeah. throughput of the ones you saw today. That'll be in a few years. We could do an interim one maybe when we break ground or something yeah. like that on that site. That'd be fun. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Gene for taking the time. I want to thank you all, especially for listening and for the ratings and for the reviews and for telling your neighbor that this is the best podcast you've ever heard. Because I know you've done that. Um, and if you haven't, why not? I will be back next week uh, with another pod. In the meantime, we'll be writing about Sila, I think, in this weekend's paper. So do check that out at thetimes.co.uk. You can follow me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. I'm around. I'm, you know, flitting around doing lots of different stuff. But um, anyhow, thank you for tuning in. Have a fabulous weekend. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. 